welcome to the DDP podcast channel. We sincerely hope you will enjoy this episode. Don't forget to turn on your notification bell and to follow us right here on Spotify for more podcast episodes. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome back to DDP Podcasts. Uh, joining me today is Zainab, and I'm so excited to have this particular conversation with her. Um, this podcast has been a long-awaited podcast. Um, as many of you are well aware, DDP has a very busy Women's Month, um, and we've had quite a number of events that we were hosting for you all. Um, and this podcast just so happens to be the roundabout full circle moment um, in which we discuss all things that were valued in this month for us, which has been investigating women, democracy and leadership. And joining me, like I said, is Zainab, who is my colleague and my friend um, and occasionally the person I bully every now and then, um, but a person who is absolutely brilliant in her work um, and specializes in um, all things that have to do with uh, women's rights and women's representation. And I thought she'd be the best person to have this discussion with today. I'll have her bio attached uh, below. But uh, before we get into our conversation, Zainab, how are you doing? How are you feeling today? Um, thank you so much, Yanga, for that um, lengthy and bullish introduction. I'm a nice person. Um, I'm doing fine today, and I'm excited for the conversations we're going to have on the subject. Perfect. Just so uh, everybody knows, uh, so this year for our women's conference, we were looking at the theme, Women in Leadership and Development, Promoting Women as Change Agents for Sustainable Development in the Post-COVID Era. Um, the context of this conference um, comes at a time in which we are discussing what does it mean to um, be represented as a woman, not just in South Africa, but on the African diaspora as a whole. Um, and, you know, whether or not democracy and the representation of women is a mutually inclusive um, phenomenon. And I mean, very recently, um, there have been theories that have been published on the fact that in situations where there are democracies and multi-party political systems and competitive elections, where there is representation of women on the ground, that representation might not necessarily be felt because of the um, well-known phenomenon of politicians having a big gap with their audience, um, or women just uh, being completely left out of the conversation when it comes to political decisions, when it comes to leadership, and when it comes to democracy. But there have been great strides that have been made regarding uh, women representation, you know, particularly with countries like South Africa and Rwanda. Um, but there's still a lot more to be done. And I think at the Women's Conference, this was something that was discussed. Um, but we're not at the women's conference now, Zainab, I want to have this conversation with you. And the, the first question I want to ask is, let's just go back to the basics. Um, what does it mean to be a woman in leadership within a democratic country? Hmm. Um, I think first of like the idea of 
leadership comes from you know being represented in a, any form of government either an autocracy or a democracy but obviously the most um probable one and the one we are talking about today is in a democracy so when we talk about representation and you know women in the same sentence we often come from the angle that women have been largely underrepresented in um democratic participation or space. So we need to then first realize that the subject of women's representation in democracy is not just something that we can just pass off as normal because of the fights and the different efforts that have been made to ensure that women have a voice and they have um, a space in you know, democratic participation. So to be a woman in leadership, to be a woman in any democratic um, system is a huge thing because that means that we have fought the good fight to be in that system, not because we didn't deserve to be there, but because certain factors kept us outside and in that our active participation in democracy. You know, I actually, your August has been such a busy month with all these women's um, events. And um, it's been very beautiful to see the celebration of it. I mean, August is a very important month in South Africa when it comes to women's rights. Um, and something very interesting happened in the one uh, uh, event I had attended, an observation that somebody had made about how often within the African context, when it came to ideas of liberation, ideas of freedom, ideas of equality, key principles um, in democracy, um, gender was something that was sacrificed and race was placed at the top, right? So it was a thing of let's be equal on the basis of race first and we will deal with gender um, as black people specifically a bit later on. And as a result of that, we can see it here in South Africa where um, during the apartheid time, the fight was for South Africa to belong to all, um, but undergirding all of that was South Africa belonging to all on the basis of race because of the fact that the apartheid government had defined its oppression along the lines of race and then everything else subsequently followed. And as a result, um, calling for freedom was first on a racial level before it came to a gendered level. And so then we see these patriarchal norms persisting beyond um, the, the point in which we have so-called freedom. And so I just wanna, want you to touch on that Zainab, on, on, on um, moments in which race has been factored over gender, or in fact, any other oppression being factored over gender, especially when it comes to, to, to black women. Mm. Um, so it's an issue about like the prioritization of gender issues across different, you know, in Africa generally like relates to every African country on the continent. So you can go out and election period and when um, you know aspirants are campaigning and they're campaigning for all of these nice, nice things, economy, technology. And then you raise the question, what about the women? People be like, ah, shut up, let's talk about important things first. So are you saying that the representation of women is not an important matter. And also this shows the attitude to which government then showed to issues 
that relate to gender. We can look at how in South Africa, for example, oh yes, liberation was important, but it didn't see the need to also fight for the active equality of genders in the country. And I'm not even like just limiting it to women and men. I'm all talking about all genders because there's an election going on in Nigeria right now. And then everybody, like queer people are asking, so where do we come in, in your manifestos as presidential aspirants? Normal citizens would be the one to tell queer um, folks that, ah, no, no, we're talking about important stuff, shut, shut up. So the, 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 the non-prioritization of gender issues and the elevation of issues like racial equality, economic inequality, just shows how little government takes gender issues. And what we don't realize, we can't want a gender equal world and deprioritize gender issues because it is in handling you know, minute gender issues like women's representation in politics, women's economic inequality, women's not being financially included, that we then have the overall achievement of gender equality. We cannot continue telling women, wait, it's going to be your turn, and expect that magically, 2050, the world is going to be gender equal. There needs to be a prioritization of gender issues. And it applies to every African country, in South Africa, in Nigeria, in Ghana, women issues, be it reproductive health, or even just childbearing they need to be taken as important as issues of the economy because we can't have half of the population of the african population marginalized and then wake up one day and be like yes we are all going to be gender equal that's not going to happen um i just want to bring it a bit closer now with regards to the effects that COVID 19 had um we we speak on it um at least from publications that have been done on a social level economic level and on a political level these are the effects of COVID-19 but I want us to narrow it down on how do you think COVID-19 either enhanced or hindered opportunities uh for women so I would say that the COVID-19 pandemic for everyone was both a yes and a no period because first it's reimagined the way things can be done like you know the future of work and how more people can go into virtual job opportunities which also includes women but we can also talk about how like for instance women that already have children and that already are married can also find inclusion in this space because most of the time when we look at the physical workspace there's a sort of like difficulty for women that are already married and women that have children. So COVID-19 brought up this possibility of a virtual space where people can work, make money, and still earn a living. Now, that is the good part. But when it comes to the bad part, and this was experienced across different African countries, we saw an increase in violence against women across the board. We have like the Minister of Police in South Africa citing the increase in domestic violence cases during lockdown. With them even launching an hotline where women can just call and be picked up from their home and put in a shelter. We also saw Mama um, NDZ also talking about the need, like how this whole um, gender-based violence cases go. Now, we cannot have women, we cannot have women experiencing violence and also them accessing opportunities. Because before you can think of the freedom to, there must be freedom from. Now the freedom from that we are talking about is this whole aspect of, oh, violence. We can also take it to Nigeria, like the issue of SARS, for, for example. I mean, during the lockdown, there was like this whole huge 
protest that rocked the whole world about you know police brutality. And while like we know that okay, men are often like profiled as criminals, women are sexually harassed by this same notorious sass. So this protest was a way for women in Nigeria and obviously the men also to voice out their opinion about how they are harassed in the country. Now, a major thing I want to point out about this is the very active role women played in this protest. And I think that for me is one of the most significant revelations about the lockdown. Because imagine such a huge protest happening when the world was supposed to be locked down, literally. So the SARS protest, we look at the epidemic of um, the domestic violence cases in South Africa, just shows that the COVID-19 period revealed that women are not where they are meant to be when it comes to access to opportunities. And more needs to be done to ensure that women don't suffer from this harassment by police officers or SARS officers, or even in the case of South Africa, where like intimate partner violence is on the rise, where husbands are, you know, taking out frustrations on their wife. Like the wives also don't have their own frustrations to deal with. So like the COVID-19 pandemic, we can talk about the good things that it did, yes, but we must not forget that the bad thing it revealed at an alarming rate and something must be done to address them. You know, I, I, I will be the first to say that um, I definitely think that the changing dynamics of the workplace situation for women um, would not have happened without, you know, COVID-19. Um, I think there was a, a study recently from the Netherlands, which was showing how um, more women are also open now to uh, starting uh, families that they perhaps wouldn't have considered um, before, you know, COVID-19 because of how the work dynamic situation kind of was. Um, but even with, you know, real estate situations right now where there's just these empty offices, um, people are just really genuinely enjoying working from home. Um, but I know I'm speaking of that from a, a, a privileged position and I'm very happy that I can, you know, that can be the parts I can focus on. But I can't ignore the fact that when we are speaking about the disenfranchisement of women because of COVID-19, um, it happened as a sense of like a ripple effect, right? Um, considering the hierarchy in which women are sitting at, right? Especially Black women, Black queer women, right? Um, particularly here in South Africa, it, it was a, a very interesting phenomenon because there's the one part of it of um, people didn't want lockdowns because of how much gender-based violence was happening within their own homes. But beyond where the gender-based violence actually was happening, South African homes are headed by single mothers who are breadwinners. Um, and now you had this pandemic that came in um, and snatched for majority of those jobs. So a lot of breadwinners um, lost their economic stability, right? Um, and I feel like there's a lack of intersectionality in the way that the state engages with matters of um, economic inequality, um, even to the point of like dealing with it for young people, right? Um, there's really like a lack of intersectionality there regarding how COVID affected, you know, young people. Um, the statistics and the relationship between how teenage pregnancies increased during COVID-19 um, than when before COVID-19. But it's not because teenagers are free, frothy, wanting to 
be consistently having sex, most of them were placed in a position of saying that, okay, I think the best thing that I can do is have a kid so I can get a social grant from the government because that's the only way I can get money right now. And those are young women, right? Um, so it's like this perpetuated um, cycle of poverty that uh, women are into and COVID-19 just exacerbated that but also revealed what we kind of already knew and we just didn't know how to pinpoint it and say it out loud. Um, next question I have for you Zainab is you know I, 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 perhaps this is touching a little bit more on your on your PhD research. Um, now we know the position of women in society. And I think um, over here, we're really engaging with the position of black women in society. Um, now, how do we get to be represented? How do we get to be in positions of leadership? Um, what are some of the factors that hinder women from being in positions of leadership? Hmm. You know, funny enough, I was writing, I'm literally writing a paper on like, the need for a continental uh, gender quota to ensure that women are represented in the political space. So now we can talk about what we should do to ensure that women are represented without talking about what hinders them to not be represented. And I think the biggest bad guy in all of these discussions is often patriarchal societal norms. Like either you pick it from the religious angle or you pick it from the cultural angle or you even pick it from like normal societal um, relationship. These norms rear their head up and they just show in how, oh, um, women, uh, okay, just stay at home. Politics is the reserve of men. Are you a woman? Can you be waking up at 12 a.m. to attend political meetings? These are the issues. Like when you make participation in politics, the preserve of a particular gender, then you're telling the other gender that they do not have what it takes to participate in politics. What we've seen over time that to participate in politics it is not based on masculinity. It's for everyone because the essence of politics is to ensure that interests are protected. And like, you know, one um, female MP I interviewed said, you cannot talk about me without me being there. So even though you are passionate about my interests, the way I am going to, you know, table what I'm going through is different from how you as a second, um, what would I call it, a messenger would put it out. But we need to recognize that patriarchy still exists. Even in South Africa that has 46% of women in parliament, it is ripe and it exists. Rwanda has 61, patriarchy exists. I mean, we saw that um, thing where the girl was jailed because of what she wore. I mean, why are we policing women's bodies? Why is the state getting involved in what a woman can do with her body? So we can go on and on about how societal norms, culture and tradition, religious factors, they play a role in stereotyping that women are not made for public decision-making space. Politics, peace building, um, you can look at also like the economy. But we've seen overwhelming evidence of our women. Let's look at South Africa. Women head households in South Africa. I mean, we have more women-headed households than uh, men-headed households. And what it takes to keep a home together can be likened to what it takes to keep a country together. Oftentimes, people just try to, you know, um, what's the word? 
make it more difficult than running a country. Yes, running a country is difficult, but like, don't make it look like women can't do it. Women have been doing they it. Women, they, did it. they downplay the skill. I mean, yeah, yeah. I guess. Say, oh, yes, um, women should be at the home. You downplay everything that women do. Oh, housework, uh, it's, not really a, uh, it's not really that difficult. They do the housework and let women go outside to do politics for you. If you feel for politics is too difficult for women to understand, at least put them there and let them do it first. So this whole stereotype, this whole norms, this whole tradition, they have eaten deep. It, like, you could put, like, it, it's so sad because unconsciously, you put like three men, no, not even three men vying for a position, or let's say one man vying for a position and three women on the ballot. Unconsciously, voters vote for that man. Why? Because they feel, they feel like, oh, it would be better place to lead the country than a woman. And you can ask them why. They probably won't be able to give you an answer that surpasses, oh, um, a woman is meant to be in the kitchen. I even though I know she's competent, but women are this woman. I was literally in an Uber, and this man, he was saying, oh, um, um, she, yes, she has gone to the AU, she has done this, she has done that, but still, South African politics is too difficult for her to understand. Excuse me? Oh, you said she, she has the competence. Like, this man said, oh, she has the competence, she's good, but South African politics is too difficult. What is difficult in the politics that she has not done? Like, what is it about politics that they make it look like it's rocket science and women are not capable of it? You go to Nigeria, they tell you, ah, no, yes, women can be ministers and senators, but being the president is especially difficult. What about it is difficult? If you agree that women are competent, if you agree that women are competent, house, um, hold, head, they can do everything, why not the political space? So it all goes, boils down to stereotype, societal norms and tradition, which is really sad because until we get rid of those norms and tradition, they will always restrict how far women can go in politics. Well, I don't know, Sanab. I think the gatekeeping of the political space now as two academics, let's, let's chat frankly there, has to go back down to what is the definition of politics to begin with, right? We know the sentence is an essentially contested concept, but at the core of it, regardless of how you define politics, it's about power, right? Um, and if there's anything that patriarchy doesn't want, it's to have women have access to power. And in this case, politics has become so masculine and such a um, manly territory and being defined within the lens of masculine ideas of what power is, that it becomes incomprehensible for people to even imagine a woman in a position of power. And it comes out even when women are in positions of power um, and are presidents. And I'll take, for example, you know, the Finnish prime minister, um, who, as the youngest uh, prime minister, you know, in the country, um, she's a young woman, and a video of her having some fun with some friends was leaked out on social media, and the people in her country, or at least the politicians in her country, came for her neck, 
um, as if they have never partied before in their entire lives. And I saw a meme that was saying that, no, the difference here is that you guys have partied before, your friends just don't know how to use cell phones. Um, which talks about, you know, the age gap within the political spaces and this idea that it should be older men in them. And in fact, I think that the Finnish prime minister has exposed perhaps a, a taste of what scandals are going to come in the future, right? Um, it's going to be technology-based scandals. It's going to be situations of young people hanging out with their friends and it's all oh, so controversial however you know manly presidents can go ahead and have affairs um and they can just do a quick apology about that right so it's 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 very interesting how those power dynamics actually play out um but i just do want to say on the record there was absolutely nothing and B, we can't talk about double standards also i mean yeah it is double standards 100 percent um but it's double standards because the lens in which women are seen um, when it comes to power are different to the lens in which men are seen when it comes to power. Um, and you know, I think we can go on a huge debate right now on um, those dynamics and where they actually come from, but even the ideas of patriarchal norms and um, the role colonialism has played, intercultural exchanges, all of that. But that's not the focus of this conversation. Um, the, the next question I want to ask you is, given the fact that South Africa's constitution is one of the constitutions that is the most valued in the world, one of the most pristine constitutions, a constitution that is looked up to highly, um, although the ANC policy conference that's coming up soon might tell you a little bit otherwise, but I'll leave that for another day. Um, it doesn't change the fact that the constitution of South Africa is very highly valued. And it is possibly the most free constitutions in the whole of Africa, right? And a constitution that actively protects queer rights and queer people, queer women, trans women. Um, but I just want to ask you, do you think that the status quo makes it possible for not just queer women, but specifically black trans women to be in the positions of power. We have this beautiful document that is protecting them, but does that mean that that translates into them actually being in positions of power, regardless of their gender, regardless of their sexuality? Hmm. That, my friend, is the dilemma between having a very fantastic legal framework or legal instruments and the reality of your society. So we can talk about the states within the framework of a political entity that recognizes the right of all. And then we can talk about it as a society that is still ruled to an extent by norms, tradition, religion, customs, and all of these things. So now, the constitution says one thing, but what happens on the ground is what matters. I mean, we can pull out the statistics of how many corrective rape that lesbians have to go through in South Africa. We can pick up the stats of harassment that trans men go through just because, in quote, they are going against the order of God and the order of nature. I mean, why are you changing your gender? Don't, are you not satisfied with being a man? Are you not satisfied with being a woman? So the thing is that 
the constitution can be there. But to what extent is that constitution reflecting in the actions and behaviors of the citizens? And that is the answer to, oh, will a trans person be you know, accepted? Because it is more of acceptability. Because if the society which they are contesting in, if they like you as a person, it's a different thing for them to then accept you as you can be a good political representative of ours that fosters our interest in whatever halls of power that you're going to. And oftentimes we find out that African countries generally are still knee deep, but knee deep into this whole idea that, oh, we're just trying to you know, accept this whole evolution. Oh, trans, ah, transgender, I was that one again. Uh -uh. I thought he's only gay and lesbian that we're doing. So the thing is that the constitution is good. Honestly, the South African constitution is up there, like up there as one of the most fantastic, I mean, work of art ever written. Let me just put it that way. But the reality of South African queer folks is different. And as long as we still have a disconnect between the constitution and how people accept, or I don't even want to say accept because I don't think queer people should need to be accepted for who they are. Because it puts power on, this, on, on the other people rather than them, they own the power. They should accept. Like if I, if I as a queer person, I've accepted myself, I don't care. But, but just don't harm me for who I am. Do not discriminate me because of who I am. Now, when we then take the conversation further to, can I then represent you in politics? That's a whole different ballgame of what the, what the constitution says and what the society accepts as normal. And until we get rid of stereotypes that only sees gender in two frames, men and women, the issue of trans in politics is going to be met with, you know, high bros and reason of like, uh, okay, some might accept, but like widespread acceptance is still like, they still we still have a long way to go with that. We indeed definitely do still have a very long way to go regarding that. Um, I know that Pride Month is celebrated um, during June um, at the, in the rest of the world, but I know that South Africa um, prefers having it a little bit more in the warmer months. Um, and Pride Month is actually coming up now next month in September. And uh, perhaps I can bring on a guest that can um, divulge on this topic a, a little bit further. Um, but, you know, Zainab, I think this is where we can end our uh, conversation. But just before we round everything up, I just want to ask you on a personal level. You know, we hear this word empowerment, um, women empowerment. Respectfully, I'm soft. I am not in Bogoto. I am not a rock. Um, but for many people, that's what they believe. Uh, it means for them to be empowered as a woman. And Zainab, I just wanted to ask you, what does woman empowerment mean to you? Hmm. So I think for me, that's an embedded question because I don't think there's one way to empower a woman. Or, you know, one thing I find particularly interesting when celebrities or popular people are asked, they'll be like, oh, I want to be a voice, the voiceless. Blah, blah. I'm like, mom, these people have voice. They are just unable to use that voice because of the restrictions that certain norms have placed. Okay? So I don't want to be voice of the voiceless. I just want to work towards ensuring that the restrictions that limit women from using their voice are dismantled totally. So all this, so all this, um, 
I, 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 please, please, they're so cringe what they are. So, so for, for me, women empowerment is helping women to own their agents because they have it. It's just the system in place that hinders them on how they can use it to make women own their agency, to make decisions that benefit them and to know that they can aspire to be what they want in as long as they don't think of themselves as small or, or um, uh, no, uh, men, they are for policy. No, you can be anything. Just put your mind to it. And obviously, we make sure that resources are there so this dream can be actualized. So for me, it's you know, owning one's agency as a woman. Owning your agency is how we end this podcast today. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening in. Um, from us at DDP, we wish you a happy Women's Month. Um, the month is not over yet. We sincerely hope that you continue celebrating it and celebrating women beyond August. Like you don't just wait for August to be like, okay, yeah, no, women are actually really special. Um, I hope you celebrate them throughout the entire year and you yourself as a woman. I hope you celebrate yourself. Um, realizing the power you have, the agency you have, the voice you have, the importance you have, the value you have. Um, otherwise, from all of us at DDP, we want to say thank you very much. And I will catch you next time in our next podcast. Zainab, thank you for coming through today. I really do appreciate thank it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this felt like just a conversation over tea that we would usually have. So this was really fun for me to host. Uh, until next time, DDP community. Thank you. Well, we really hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out our social media pages at DDP underscore democracy to engage with more of our content. Or you can head on over to our website at ddp.org.za to keep up with any events that we might have planned for you. Thank you once again for joining us.